Hey, everyone. You're listening to the 10-7 podcast, where we get together every fortnight, and sometimes more often, to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegich. My guest today is Jeff Geerling, author and software developer who is deeply involved in numerous open source development communities. He describes himself as a creative person who builds great software. I first saw his name in the Drupal community, but he's really active in Ansible and is also the creator of Drupal VM for local Drupal development, as well as the Raspberry Pi Dramble. Hey, Jeff, welcome. It's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. I've been uh, looking forward to talking to you guys on 107's podcast. I've been looking forward to talking to you as well. I absolutely love Raspberry Pis. I have, I think, at least 10 of them over here. So I don't know if that's catching up to how many you have, but <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's definitely something that I have um, tinkered with for the last number of years. And so getting an opportunity to talk to you is very exciting for me. Yeah, yeah, 10 is a good start. Uh, you're going to have to up your game a little bit, though. <laughs> How many do you have, Jeff? Come on, let's be uh, honest. Just, just looking over in my parts bin, I have seven, seven that are not in any active use. I have four in my cluster. I have five hot spares for other purposes and three that are running household projects right now. Okay, so close to 20, <laughs> if not more. That's a lot yeah. of Raspberry Pis. It fluctuates depending on what projects I'm working on. Man, that's awesome. Well, I kind of want to spend uh, the whole interview talking about Raspberry Pis um, and the Raspberry Pi Dramble that you have and that you've been working on recently and that's been going for about four years now, I think. Um, but before we kind of deep dig uh, dive deep into that, I'd like to kind of get an understanding just a little bit about Jeff Geerling, the man. Where do you live in the world? Where did you go to school? Uh, what what do you do in life? You're not you're not just playing with Raspberry Pis the, all the time. <laughs> no, I live in St. Louis, Missouri, which is pretty near the geographical center of the United States. Some people call it flyover country, but uh, because of that, we actually now have a Drupal camp named Flyover Camp that yes, I attended we do. last year. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. And uh, that I I got to meet uh, one of Ten Seven's uh, employees, Tess Flynn. There, she had a really good talk on Kubernetes, but. Um, I love living in the Midwest. Uh, one of the best advantages is I have like a lot of family here. The cost of living is lower uh, than coastal cities, and uh, I get to still do a lot of remote work. And the coolest thing is any flight anywhere in the U.S. is only about two, two and a half hours, whereas a lot of times I, I get somewhere and they're like, oh, I just got off a six or seven hour flight from the other coast. So it's it's nice to be able to get around anywhere in the U.S. and uh, still have family and and all those benefits. Um, and I I actually studied philosophy, which has, well, you could say it has nothing to do with programming or nothing to do with tech, but really uh, a lot of philosophy, um, a lot of the philosophy I studied was logic and reason and things like that. Which, if you're a programmer, that's pretty much all you deal with on a day to day basis. Actually, if you're dealing with Kubernetes, logic is out the window. But, <laughs> but yes, still. it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's a different kind of logic, right? Yeah, deep down there's ones and zeros somewhere underneath, and <laughs> you have to understand that. 
Um, so I, I studied philosophy. I actually went to a seminary to study to be a priest for a few years. Oh, um, and ended up finding that that was not not what I was meant to do. So I was meant to be, you know, I, I wanted to get married. So I, I ended up leaving the seminary, getting married, have three kids and a wife, and um, happy to be here in St. Louis. Uh, one of the things other, other than that in my life that's really affected a lot, especially how I work and, and the jobs I've worked and things, is my uh, Crohn's disease. It's a chronic illness that I have that uh, has required a, a few surgeries. It's required a lot of time in the hospital. Um, in fact, I was just in the hospital a couple weeks ago um, for it. But because of that, I've, I've always been extremely grateful to, to have the skills that I have in tech because... I can work. There's been many times where I'd been in the hospital, but nobody would even know it because I'm still doing my work since I can do everything I need to on a computer or an iPad or whatever and, uh, and work remote. So I'm, I'm extremely happy and feel very blessed to be able to do that kind of work. And, and you know, in open source, everything is asynchronous. So that benefits me because if I had to do a job where I had to be in a desk or be at a place doing manual labor certain hours in a day, and I had to miss a lot of work, that would not be a, you know, I, I wouldn't be a very good employee, but I can be a good a good employee doing remote work and open source work, even though I have Crohn's disease, which impacts my life and a lot of my friends' lives uh, pretty deeply. Is I don't know very much about Crohn's disease. I know it's related to your digestive system, and I think to your intestines. Um, yep. Is it something that you that that you're genetically predisposed to have? Is it something that's hereditary? Is it something that how? how um, and how did you find still, out? <laughs> it's something that's still under investigation. One of the difficult things Crohn's is in a family of. Um, immune-related diseases. Mm. And for pretty much all of them, it's, it's hard to say right now with the research we have if it's more genetic or more environmental, all those different things. There's a lot of theories. And, and one, one other interesting thing and a, a good reason why I stay in St. Louis, uh, we have one of probably the top five or 10 Crohn's research facilities in St. Louis at, uh, at, our, at our local WashU hospital and, and medical school. And I've, I've been able to talk to some of the best Crohn's doctors in the world, and all of them have theories, and all of them, you know, there's a lot of research, but not a lot of concrete facts other than, you know, throw these medicines at it and hope for the best. And unfortunately, in my life, I've tried literally every medicine. I'm not joking. Every medicine that's ever been made for Crohn's, I've been on it. One of them paralyzed me from the waist down, so I got off that medicine. Oh, my God. was not paralyzed anymore, so that was good. Uh, <laughs> another one caused anaphylaxis, so I'm like, okay, I'm not going to take that one. So all these drugs, you know, uh, some of them are life-changing, uh, but a lot of them don't last very long because the, the way that they operate, your body starts reacting to them no matter what. So once you hit that, you start doing surgeries, and I, that's the stage I'm in right now, but... The good thing is, um, you know, if, if you, in my mind, if you have a positive outlook on it, if you can find ways to work with it, it's, it, you know, you, you can bounce back. I'm, I'm generally a very optimistic person, and I think that's also how I can survive in the open source world where things can get <laughs> a bit dicey sometimes. They certainly can. Well, I'm glad that you're able to talk about Crohn's um, so openly, and um, I hope that your last bout wasn't a, a terrible one, a bad one, and um, I hope you're on the on the upswing. 
No, I was only in the ICU for one day. That's a good thing. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Uh, well, uh, I'm glad to be talking to you about it. So, so you're in the Midwest, um, working remotely is amazing. Um, mm -hmm. and you might know we became remote in 2017 and we're not looking back. It's definitely, wow, you know, opened up so many different avenues for us. Um, and so I'm glad that you have that as well to be able to do what you do at home. Um, the piedramble.com site, I want to start at the end and then kind of work back to how you, how you are hosting piedramble.com in your basement on a cluster of Raspberry Pis. And they run Ansible and Kubernetes and Drupal and Nginx and all kinds of things. And to someone who heard a whole bunch of jargon right now, and doesn't understand why this isn't really cool thing. Can you describe what piedramble.com is? Yeah, so most of us uh, who have a Drupal site or WordPress or whatever kind of website we're running, most of us have a cloud hosting provider, and you never have to worry about things like servers and power and networking and all that kind of stuff. You just go online, buy service, and then you upload a Drupal site to it and log in and edit your stuff. I, I've always wanted to have as much control as I can over my hosting and my sites and my performance and all that. And uh, so a few years back when the Raspberry Pi came out, it was interesting. The, the first couple versions of the Raspberry Pi were super underpowered. And like if you installed Drupal, I think Drupal 6 or 7 was the current version at the time, even, even that version, you'd install Drupal on it, it would take like a minute or two for a page to load. They were super slow. Wow. We didn't have much memory or anything. But as time went on, the Raspberry Pi Foundation kept introducing newer, faster models. And somewhere around like 2015 or 2014, I think was, I don't remember exactly when, they, they introduced the Raspberry Pi 2. And that model had enough memory to actually run Drupal pretty well. So I bought a few of those uh, to see if I could set up a Drupal cluster and run my own Drupal website in my own house using a cluster of them. You could do it on one, one Raspberry Pi, but you know, Raspberry Pis are not, because of the fact that they use micro SD cards, which are not like as fast or as good as hard drives for longevity, much less SSDs that most of us have nowadays. Because of that, if you just run it on one Raspberry Pi, it's kind of flaky and it might just blow up and die one day and then you have to reinstall it and stuff. So I wanted to see if I could make a robust little cluster of computers to run a Drupal site uh, and there was a, a secondary uh, thing that I was trying to do too, is to make a little cluster of computers to demonstrate like running Drupal or other applications like it uh, in a high availability way with multiple servers and have it be able to be like in a little box that I could bring with me somewhere. So I started doing that. I brought it to uh, Drupal Camp St. Louis. I brought it to DrupalCon. I think the first one was Austin that I brought it to. And Dries actually took a picture of it. This was before I worked for Acquia. Um, and actually I was hired by Acquia soon after DrupalCon, completely unrelated, but <laughs> it was just an interesting aside. Uh, Dries came up and he's like, oh, what is that? And I'm like, oh, it's my Raspberry Pi cluster. He's like, oh, that's really cool. I got to take a picture. So he and I now, uh, have, have, uh, shared more stories about pictures and things. He's actually a pretty photographer, photographer. right? Yeah. And I, I've always loved photography, used to do it semi-professionally, did some photojournalism, but don't get to do as much nowadays. However, some of my other Raspberry Pi projects do have to do with cameras, but 
uh, getting back to the Pydramble, I over the years I've I've made it more robust. I've done some more work to automate the setup process. I documented everything in excruciating detail. Uh, there's videos on the website of how I how to do the the first version of the cluster. I haven't set up new videos for the current version, but um, in 2017, when Kubernetes was getting to be a lot more popular, and I was starting to use it for some things, I thought, it, you know, maybe it could run on the Pi. And it ran, but it, it just barely ran. So I, I had a lot of trouble because the Raspberry Pi only had one gigabyte of memory, and that was the absolute minimum you could run Kubernetes on. Yeah. So I got it working. It was kind of janky and kind of fell apart sometimes, and I was getting, getting really frustrated. But in, in 2018, uh, the Raspberry Pi, no, was it 2018 or 2019? Was that this year that the Pi 4 came out? Pi 4 um, came out this year. Um, I oh, believe wow. it was in June. I think they were talking about it for months, but okay. no one ever knew when it would come out. It was, so that was a lot June more, of this year. More recent than I remembered, but the day it came out, I ordered... I, it's really hard to get Raspberry Pis right after their release because they're very popular mm-hmm. for makers and, and hackers and things, and people who have fun with computers. And uh, so I placed an order from a company in the UK for one because most of them have limits on the orders for the first few weeks. So I did one from the UK, one from a place in the US. I got two from Micro Center. They're usually the best place to get them in the US. Yes, they are. Um, and so I got those four together, and I got the two gigabyte models. And with two gigabytes of RAM, Kubernetes actually ran pretty well. So that's, that's the uh, current state of my cluster. I have Kubernetes running. I have Drupal running on Kubernetes. I have the two gigabyte Raspberry Pi 4s, and I power them using power over Ethernet. Uh, which means that I only have one cable I have to plug into each Pi. So if if you go to Raspberry, or if you go to PyDramble.com, the picture there shows you how they look and and what they do. Now, what the heck is a, bram- a Dramble? I I mean <laughs> I know what a Bramble bush is, but let's let's take it back. Let's take it down. What's a Dramble? Yeah, so a Dramble uh, is a I guess it's called a portmanteau when you put together different words. Um, a Bramble is a bush of raspberries so you know when you when you see a, a raspberry bush I, I usually call it a raspberry bush but a lot of people call it a bramble i and, knew that was uh, the case bramble bramble <laughs> was something i knew <laughs> yeah so traditionally from the beginning of the raspberry pi people who made clusters of them called them brambles it, it that's not as much the case anymore since raspberry pies got super popular but early on everybody would say i have a bramble of pies but my Bramble of Pies was running Drupal, and so I took Drupal and Bramble and put them together, and it came up with Dramble. Little did I know at the time, that was also when I registered the domain for it, uh, that the word Dramble, if you looked it up and found it on certain like urban dictionary-type sites, it had a very different definition. But I think now if you search on Google, my, my Pi Dramble site is, might have a higher ranking for it. So I just I just did that. <laughs> I typed in Dramble because, you know, I want to know what it means on Urban Dictionary. And the first hit was PyDramble.com. So great. Yes. Yeah, so you're Drupal you're SEO. <laughs> Drupal SEO is so good after all these years. If um, anybody but, listening out there needs Drupal SEO, Jeff is the guy. <laughs> yeah. So it, another funny thing that I found out when I was, so that was the original reasoning, but I also, somebody asked me more about it one time and I was like, oh, I'll, I'll look up a little more information. And um, I found out that other, uh, like the generic term, so, so 
raspberries are brambles. That's their type of bush. But uh, all the different types of berries that are like it, like raspberries, blackberries, dewberries, all those things, they actually um, grow in clusters, little, they call them aggregates of drupalets. And I was like, this is what? Like, this is like Providence, drupalets. So it's Drupal-its. a bramble of drupalets. It's, it's spelled D-R-U-P-E-L-E-T-S, but that's, that is the official uh, biological term, I guess. That, or, I, uh, I thought you, you're making that up. You're not, you, that can't be possible. Drupal it? That's basically Drupal, except, oh, <laughs> uh, okay. So, so if, so you, this if is you go pretty... to Wikipedia and search for droop, D-R-U-P-E, it has a whole article about droplets. Oh my gosh, look at that. <laughs> a, a stone fruit. Yeah, my I goodness, don't think I would want to is... eat a stone fruit. That doesn't sound no, very tasty. That does not sound tasty. How interesting. So... So what a great name for this little cluster of Drupal uh, technology, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, so you talked about creating the cluster. Um, can we go back to the first version of the Raspberry Pi cluster, the Dramble that you created? Um, what were the versions? Uh, or it was a Raspberry Pi 2, I think, or 2 Plus, or something like that. And I'd like to hear about the stack, because I think the stack of technology has changed over the years. Yeah, yeah. It, the, the first version was a very traditional cluster of, of web server technology. It, it was based on LAMP, and actually the, I, the, first, the first ever version, which I, ever, I never actually put up on GitHub, the, the first version that I had locally was running Linux, Apache, MySQL, and PHP. And the way I had it set up was... The top server was running Apache, and Apache was set up to uh, redirect web requests to the two PHP servers, that were server number two and three. And then I had two database servers. There was uh, the database, the primary or master server, and then the the secondary server that was uh, set up to replicate the, the master in case the master goes down. And so that that was. There's still a lot of people that run those kind of setups where there's an, a server for each one of those purposes, you know. And you might be in Amazon or somewhere else, or if you're using a, a cloud hosting provider for Drupal, some of them still set up their servers that way, where you have dedicated servers for database and all that. Um, and the the cool thing about it was I used Ansible to do everything, and I actually used almost the same kind of Ansible playbook that I use for Drupal VM to manage all those individual servers mm. and get them set up. So I could have, I, I timed it one time I, in, in about 35 minutes it took from the time that you had the hardware plugged in to the time it was serving up a Drupal website with a fully redundant, highly available, uh, relatively high performance because we're talking about Raspberry Pis, right, uh, right, cluster of computers. So that was the, the first version way, way back. And then soon after that, I switched to using uh, Nginx, just because it was a little easier to configure Nginx to be that that load balancer layer, and also Nginx has built-in caching, so instead of instead of having like a uh, a varnish server, I could use Nginx for that purpose uh, because it had the the basic caching I needed. Varnish is way better for some things, but but I switched to Nginx mostly because it you just like change a couple settings and it caches images. And you're and done. Really, really easy. How many total versions have there been now? If we if we fast forward to the uh, Raspberry Pi four cluster that you have now, how many versions have there been, and 
What what are the kind of the biggest lessons you've learned in the evolution of this cluster? Uh, there's been four major versions. It's it hasn't been like each pi each pi model is a new version. It's more like each technological shift has been a new version. The first version had that first like uh, two database servers set up and all that. Uh, the second version, I actually ditched the the replica MySQL server because uh, for two reasons. One is it's not it's not that easy to uh, maintain a, a a replica a replica setup like that with MySQL. Uh, especially for oh. people who are like not who are newer to the the whole lamp stack and management and things, and um, even with automation, it can be a little difficult. So I ditched that just because that was never a problem in the real world for me. And um, the most important thing was just to have a backup of the the primary server. So I have a nightly backup that it does. Um, and then the second thing was just streamlining things making it a little simpler. The first versions I had had a lot of configurability and things, but really you, you just you want the server to be easy to set up and easy to manage. And the more complexity you add to a project like this, especially if it's a hobby project and I'm not earning tons of income from it. In fact, I've never earned a dime from it, but I have not gotten yet. to go to a couple, uh, a couple Drupal camps and things, and it's been great to learn from it, uh, but, uh, but it, making it simpler is better. So I think... Version two is just kind of simplifying the architecture, making it so that you could use four or five Raspberry Pis instead of requiring six, things like that. And then um, version three, I think version three might have been the first Kubernetes version. I could be wrong there because um, that was yeah that that was like uh, about a year ago that I came out with three, and uh, I started working on you know getting everything into Kubernetes, which makes it easier to uh, to scale up or scale down if you want to. You could have 100 Raspberry Pis or two Raspberry Pis or four, depending on how redundant you want everything, how scalable, because Kubernetes lets you say, like, instead of this server is MySQL and this server is a PHP, you can say, I want to have three PHP things and two MySQL things and one load balancer thing, and it just puts them on servers. And it, you can tell it, like, for MySQL, I don't want the two MySQLs to be on the same server because that would be bad for performance. So Kubernetes sorts all that out for you, and you just say, hey, Kubernetes, I have these five things I want to run, and I have these four servers. Go do your thing, and Kubernetes manages it for you. That's the cool thing about Kubernetes. It's more complicated than that in the real world, but I, it's getting easier as time goes on. It, Kubernetes is one tech uh, technology that started out crazy complicated and has gotten a lot easier over the years. As uh, as they refine it, as they um, make things more robust and and a little easier to get started with, and as people understand it more. And is everything in the cluster now orchestrated with um, Ansible, and is everything virtualized as containers inside Kubernetes, or do you still have like a an ingress that's an nginx or on a separate uh, Raspberry Pi, for example? Almost everything. So right now, the ingress is actually uh, running inside of Kubernetes. Uh, and the way that I have it set up is you just point your DNS at one of the Raspberry Pis. Uh, so that's that's obviously not wonderful. If that one Raspberry Pi goes down, you got to point your DNS at another Raspberry Pi. So that's one slight weakness of the architecture. But as an alternative, you could have another Raspberry Pi being the ingress and be a load balancer 
But then if that Raspberry Pi goes down, you have a problem. So that's mm-hmm. one, one case where having a cloud internet provider, a cloud hosting provider like Amazon or Google, is really nice because you can have their cloud balancers, cloud load balancers. Uh, they take care of all the really complicated stuff in terms of when you get a request for your website, what happens if one of the servers that is you know, routing those requests goes down? All those cloud systems, they kind of self-heal automatically with DNS mm-hmm. and with all their different things. When you're running a website in your basement, you have like one IP address, and it's not very reliable usually, especially if you're using most ISPs in the USA. And, <laughs> uh, and you don't get any more IP addresses. And if that route goes bad and one server goes down, it, you know you can have a lot of issues. Uh, so that that's one area, one of the main reasons why I would say if you have a like a website that sells things or you generate a lot of revenue off your website, you probably don't want to run it inside your house like like the Pied Ramble website is because it it does have you know ten twenty minutes every few days of downtime when my ISP is just like yeah you guys aren't getting internet for right now too bad <laughs> that happens a lot. <laughs> What do you think the biggest lesson is that you've learned going from your first version to this, um, the latest one that you have? Uh, I think the biggest thing is just how uh, managing a cluster with Kubernetes. Managing Kubernetes is difficult. It's still not easy. But managing a cluster of application stuff with Kubernetes is a lot easier than it was when it was just individual servers. Because... You used to have to manage each application on each server, uh, and it, it would take a lot of time to get things set up and to tweak things and to make sure all the backups were good. When you standardize in Kubernetes and have everything running in a container, it, it, it is more complicated at the start when you're learning it because containers means that you have to build the container and you have to you know, have a place to store the container and all that. But once you have that set up, it's everything is automated, like out of the box. You don't have to spend time worrying about how do I get this to go here and how do I change the configuration? You just say, like, deploy this version, and it's there, and it's happy, and Kubernetes does it all for you. So that was the biggest lesson was, like, sometimes the complexity does save a lot of hassle if you if you need it. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of people listening to this probably, you know, you might not need to be doing your own hosting stuff. I don't technically need to, but I do like to uh, because a lot of the work that I do uh, does have to be more complex. So doing these fun side projects for me teaches me things. Uh, another cool lesson I had was um, there's a lot of things, a lot of things in, uh, in when you're running on a server that's slower. There's a lot of things you learn to worry about that will save your skin when you run something on even faster servers when they're under heavy load. Now one of the biggest ish- instances of that is. When you have a really slow hard drive access, like when, when it takes a long time to write files on the Raspberry Pi, which it does a lot, uh, you start bumping into weird issues that you never see if you only ran your tests on your local computer that has a Intel Core 2 Duo or whatever the latest i9 chip or something. If you're doing that with an SSD all the time, you're not going to run into these weird issues. Mm-hmm. But when you're on a cloud hosting provider, which most, most companies do use those, most sites are on cloud hosting now, uh, disk access can sometimes go crazy, and the error messages you see and the, the behaviors you see can get confusing because you never really notice that, and you can't replicate it locally. 
But I've been able to replicate some of those weird things <laughs> on a Raspberry Pi just because it's so slow, the, the disk access. I actually found a bug in Twig uh, with the way that oh. Twig renders files if you have multiple computers writing to an NFS device, a storage device, and that device is writing slowly. Uh, I found that um, this was in Drupal 8.0, like the first version, right, right around the beta time frame was when I found the issue. The issue is still there in 8.0, but they fixed it. It was a race condition when you have multiple servers writing to slow shared storage. And this was good because other people, like it's not just Raspberry Pis. If you're using cloud storage, a lot of cloud storage providers have uh, throttling and you can run into the throttling sometimes. So instead of the site going down, it might just be slow. So, you know, it, it's, not, it's not all for naught and for fun. Sometimes, you know, there was that issue that I found that was an actual bug in Drupal that, that we fixed. Yeah, it's, it's amazing the kinds of things you learn when you try to scale down hardware or scale up requests and scale up bandwidth. It's, you just don't see things um, in the, you know, in general unless you do something. So that's always interesting to me as well. One of the things that I just realized as you were talking was that you actually had to come up with a way to install Kubernetes on Raspbian. And that means that you had to uh, basically either compile Kubernetes for ARM or there are already pre-compiled packages. And I never actually thought that... Um, I mean, that never actually dawned on me. So what's the, how hard was it to put Kubernetes on ARM infrastructure? So it was perfect timing for me to be getting into Kubernetes on Pi around 2017. There was, I think it was a teenager. Uh, I don't remember the guy's name, but there was somebody who just loved Raspberry Pis and loved Kubernetes. And he spent all this time making sure that the Kubernetes build system built and tested ARM architecture stuff for all the Kubernetes releases. And it just oh. got into like Kubernetes 1.8 or 1.9 or something like that right before I got started. And so um, when I was looking into it, it's like, oh, you just install Kubernetes, just like everything else. However, Kubernetes is one part of the equation mm -hmm. uh, when you're talking about running Kubernetes, uh, a cluster that runs Kubernetes, because you also need something to run the containers, and that's usually Docker. And Docker for ARM is a little bit different. You have to install it differently, and it's, there's some things you manage differently. The versions are sometimes older, and there's weird specific version things that, that cause trouble. So I ran into some issues there, and so I actually created a separate Ansible role for Docker ARM uh, from my normal Docker one because the ARM one is more complicated and convoluted, uh, but it's running pretty well now. And then another thing that you find out if you're using Raspberry Pis, since the chip is an ARM processor. It's not this typical processor in most of our laptops and, and servers, which is AMD64 or x86. Since it's a different architecture, everything has to be compiled for that architecture, and container images often have to have a specific version of the image built for it. So a lot of times you'll, you'll be like, oh, I want to deploy this to the Raspberry Pi. And you deploy it, and the Raspberry Pi and Kubernetes is like, yeah, I'm not going to deploy that. And you're like, why aren't you going to do that? <laughs> it says, yeah, it's not for ARM. And it's like, oh. And then you have to figure out, like, is it important enough for me to rebuild this image for ARM or, you know, that kind of thing. So I actually build and maintain a set of PHP and Apache base images for the Raspberry Pi, uh, and they're on my, my Docker hub. 
uh, account under Guy. Those are the ones that I use on the Raspberry Pi uh, and build on top of. Uh, and a lot of a lot of images now are supporting ARM because you can get ARM servers from Amazon and from other companies. But it's also a little deep, like it's a little more complex than just ARM, though. If I'm not mistaken, there <laughs> are different versions of ARM, yeah, and different, uh, different, not just different versions, but different. Like some are 32-bit and some are 64-bit, and yep. you can say ARM, but it's actually a little. It's even harder. Because you have to co you have to know what architecture you're building for to make sure that when you build it, it actually runs on that ARM processor. So my guess is you actually had to update your images when you went from two to three to four. Yeah. So there's uh, there's obviously there's the Raspberry Pi has its own OS that's kind of like the the official one called Raspbian, and it's based on Debian, but it's a 32-bit OS. And there's there's some initiatives to upgrade to 64-bit especially now that the Raspberry Pi 4 has more RAM and can, can use more of that 64-bit power. Uh, but a lot of the things are either ARM v6, ARM v7, or ARM 64, and you have to always figure out which one is which. And uh, I think all the, the ones that I'm building right now are ARM v7 because that was, that's what works on Raspbian. But if you run a different OS on the Pis, which you can, there's Ubuntu and uh, Debian, like actual Debian and Fedora and some other versions that you can run on the Raspberry Pis, you might have to get a different uh, version of um, of a container, which may not exist again. So right. it's it's not for the the faint of heart uh, to get get things running on the Pi all the time. It's a lot easier every year. It gets easier because more and more people support Raspberry Pi stuff. There's a lot of companies. It's an interesting thing since I do write a lot about Pis. I found out a lot of, about a lot of companies who you wouldn't even think about it, who do remote control systems, they do signage, they do uh, radio radio frequency stuff, they do logging systems, all kinds of things that are industrial and commercial applications that use Raspberry Pis for everything. And so there's a lot more support for it nowadays than there was five or ten years ago when it was only a bunch of people you know, playing around with stuff in their houses. Nowadays, the Raspberry Pi is a, a more serious computing platform. What a great success story, isn't it? Yeah. That's cruel. Um, so you've, you've seen Tess's, uh, you mentioned that you'd seen Tess's um, talk at Flyover Camp. And so you're probably familiar with Flight Deck and the um, hosting that we've been talking about, hosting live sites using Drupal on Kubernetes. She's done some great work in developing that for us, and as you know, we've open sourced all of it. But one of the things it requires is S3 block storage, like the ones from Spaces, from DigitalOcean, for example. I wanted to talk to you about two ideas. One, how hard would it be to get Flight Deck-powered Kubernetes hosting onto your cluster? And two, since it requires S3 block storage... Have you thought about um, implementing block storage on your Dramble? That's an interesting question because probably of all the issues there are in hosting Drupal on Kubernetes or any kind of what we call nowadays cloud-native hosting environments, uh, one of the main issues is always how do you store files for Drupal? And it's complicated because it's not just like in, in WordPress or a lot of other systems, usually when you ask that question, you're just talking about media uploads like I'm creating a blog post and I upload a picture to put in the blog post. Where do I put the picture? 
that's part of Drupal's problem. And that, that one is very perfectly solved by block storage and uh, works great with that. And you can integrate with CDNs and things. It's, there's a lot of different solutions for that. Um, and you can even, like what I do on the Raspberry Pi right now is I use NFS, which is not block storage, but it's just a networked uh, file system that, that is shared among all the servers. And Kubernetes mounts it into Drupal so Drupal can write to it. Uh, but when you're talking about Drupal, you're also talking about things like the Twig cache files. Uh, every time that you uh, load up a Drupal 8 website, it has to write a bunch of Twig cache files that are like compiled PHP, and it currently writes them by default into your public file system. So that's a lot of files that are read at least once um, per server. And so having a slow storage solution can cause problems with that, uh, and having slow writes can cause problems with that. Uh, and then you also are talking about uh, CSS compilation and JavaScript compilation. So there's mm-hmm. there's more complicated things with Drupal. And so I've I've seen some people doing S3 block storage. And as you say, as, as long as you have a, a provider that is compatible with the Amazon S3 kind of API for writing files, it works. So you can do it on DigitalOcean. Um, there are open source open source block storage software that you can do. And I think if, if I were to put it on a Raspberry Pi, I'd probably use one of those open source packages and install it on the Pi. Or if it's a if it's an internet site, you know, available to the internet, you could even use DigitalOcean Spaces, Spaces or Amazon S3, even though you're hosting it locally. Um, so th- those are options for it. Uh, but I've also seen people use. Um, well, I think you guys might even use Fly System or something like that to make Drupal integrate with it. Uh, there's some PHP level stuff that you can do to write files in different places, but it, that is probably the number one thing that people ask about and people debate about. And I've gone a hundred which ways. Um, I think I built it five or ten different ways in the the real real world clusters that I built that aren't on Raspberry Pis. So that is that is the million dollar question I think right now. And and there's even a couple issues on Drupal.org exploring like how can we make it easier to use a file system in Drupal that that's shared but doesn't have to make it so complicated you're actually right about fly system that's exactly how Tess implemented the file storage in the solution we have for hosting Drupal on Kubernetes um, with flight deck it's possible to do it's if you set up the infrastructure so that you have enough caching, those first-time hits don't seem as bad. Um, and we, we run our own live sites and other clients' sites in live, in production with Flight Deck um, and with block storage. And so, that's, so we use Fly System in Drupal 8. And then um, we've also got Drupal 7 sites that we're running on the Kubernetes infrastructure. Um, but I don't recall the name of the module that we're using. It's not Fly System because um, it came along only in Drupal eight. Yeah, I know. I know. I've used in the past S three FS as well, but it oh, had yeah, some. Oh yeah, that's it. I I think it. I think that's what it is. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where for most sites it will work perfectly fine, but there's always going to be some site that's doing some weird thing, and you're like, uh, so, yeah, you know. <laughs> There's, there's, like no, there's, there's no good answer. Yeah, I know. It's when you're dealing with when when you have control over the sites, that's the best. Like I have control over the PyDramble site, so if you look at it, you'll see I intentionally kept that thing super simple uh, because even under load, the Raspberry Pis can handle that. If I had you know commenting and accounts and all kinds of crazy things going on, 
and real-time chat and who, who knows what else that I've seen on people's sites, it's going to fall over. So. Yeah. Well, um, how text do those Raspberry Pi 4s um, end up being? I've seen that you're writing about the ice tower, the, the need for active cooling on the, on the processors now. Um, how is the cluster handling traffic? And, and tell me a little bit about ice tower. It sounds so cool. <laughs> You know, it's funny you ask about that. Right now, I'm looking at my, my Mac in front of me, just uh, doing this podcast. The CPU is at like 80%, and it's like dying, and the fans are on. And it's funny because the Pi is sitting over there. The fan's not even on because it's not, it's not hot enough. So, um, you know, the, the Raspberry Pi, generally speaking, if, if you're not, you know, mining Bitcoin or something on it, it's not going to use a whole lot of CPU, and uh, it's not going to need a whole lot of cooling power. However... Uh, I, you know, when I, when I do these projects, I go, I always try to go the extra mile and then an extra 10 miles after that. And, uh, I always tax them until they, you know, until I can break them basically. And so I do a lot of performance benchmarking on them. And I found that the Raspberry Pi 3B plus and the Raspberry Pi 4 both, uh, they are not quite as good at keeping their cool. The Raspberry Pi 4 was even worse than the Raspberry Pi 3, and uh, it was found pretty early on that the reason for that was they, they had a little flaw in the way that they implemented USB. They added a new USB controller that makes it USB 3, which is awesome. It's way faster mm-hmm. than the old Raspberry Pis with USB 2. You can get external hard drives and things are a lot faster. Connection has gigabit Ethernet. That's awesome. Uh, because the old Pis were always constrained to like 200 megabits or 100 megabits, way slower. So it's really awesome, but uh, the, the first version of the Pi for uh, ROM or bootloader, it, it had a flaw in it that would keep the USB chip in high power mode like all the time. So the Raspberry oh, Pi 4, even hot. if you just turned it on and left it sitting there, it would just get hotter and hotter. If you left it out in the open, which is a bad idea for dust and things like that, if you drop something on it and it's, you know, you short out a circuit or something. So everybody should have a pie in a case if you're going to have it running for any period of time. If you have it in a case, it just sits there and turns into a little oven and it cooks itself and then it starts throttling the CPU because it gets so hot. So um, I recommended, I, I did an early article about this months ago. Uh, right after it was released on how like it gets super hot and it's really bad because if you put it in a case, it'll just cook itself. And that's, that's without much load. If you put load on it, it just starts throttling right away. So I said, you, you basically have to have a fan on the thing. And that's still, it's still, uh, I still recommend having a fan on the, the new Pi. Uh, but they released a firmware update about, it was only a few weeks ago that they released this firmware update that sets the USB chip into the correct mode for, um, it it very slightly reduced the performance of USB, but not really in any huge meaningful way for most people's usage, but it makes the Pi like eight degrees Celsius cooler, which is hugely significant. That's a, that's a huge difference. Um, and I, I've been doing measurements. I I posted one blog post a week or so ago on this, and I'm going to be doing another one uh, because I tested with a couple more cases how, how that affects the Pi's cooling. But um, basically, the, the general thing that I'd say now is you, you still need to have some method of cooling the Pi's. So for my cluster, I have the Raspberry Pi hat, the power over Ethernet hat that has a fan built into it. And all that fan does is blows a little bit of air onto the processor. That's enough to keep it cool, because you just need some 
some convection uh, over that processor. If you put it in a case, there's no convection because the case is just going to hold that air inside of it and heat it up. If you have it open air or if you have a fan blowing on it, it will make some convection. It'll take the air and move it over the processor, take that heat away. So that's all that's really needed. But uh, a company called Seed, Seed Studios, I think, or S2Pi, S2Pi, they sent me this thing. It's this Colossus heatsink. It's not Colossus when you compare it to like, I don't know if anybody ever built a Pentium 2 rig back oh, in the day. But yes. you know, you'd have those giant those coolers giant. that were like the size yeah. of a computer nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a giant fan or two fans on either side of it, blowing air through it. Or if you ever saw the, the Power Mac G5 quad core, I saw one of those one time. And the cooling system is bigger than everything else on the computer. Like it's kind of the equivalent of that for a Raspberry Pi because a Raspberry Pi is the size of a credit card, and this ice tower is like the size of, it's the size of the whole board but super tall as well. And uh, if you use it, you can't put it in the case, but it does do an unbelievably good job at cooling the Raspberry Pi. It cools the Raspberry <laughs> Pi so cool that it's almost like you don't even have it running when you have the fan on the thing. It's it's it it does what it says it does. It keeps it ice cold. Uh, but at, at a bit of an expense, you can't use pie hats with it if you use that cooler. You can't fit it in most conventional cases. Uh, but if you do... You can't, if, if you you can't do, put it, it in a cluster. Yeah, if, if you were doing web hosting, it wouldn't be a bad idea to build a custom little case for these things because that would keep the CPU so cold that it would operate a little better. It would make the pie operate have, a little better. Does it have um, contact with the CPU? Yeah, it has a. It comes with a little thermal pad. It's like a little piece of rubber, but it's thermal thermal rubber, and yet you just wedge it between the CPU and the the cooler. It has two copper. Well, it has one copper heat pipe that goes up and down, and that copper attaches to cooling fins. The cooling fins distribute the heat, and even if you run it without the fan, it's going to keep it way cooler than just blowing a fan over the processor. It, it does a really good job at cooling, and the fan makes it do even better job. Like it, it the difference was. Without the ice tower, it was like uh, 60, 60 degrees Celsius. With the ice tower, it was 30 degrees Celsius. It was a huge, wow. huge difference. That's a giant difference. Wow. Well, it's unfortunate you can't use it in uh, your whole cluster because yeah. that little compact package you have, I would assume the ice tower just doesn't allow for it. Yeah. Luckily with the tower, since I switched to the Pi hat, the, the power Ethernet hat for it, uh, since it has those built-in fans, that's just enough to keep it from overheating. Uh, with Kubernetes running, Kubernetes does take up some CPU constantly, so it does get hotter over time, but it, it stays under the uh, throttling threshold. Another option that I, I just I actually bought one because I keep I kept having people tell me like you should try the the Flirk case, and I'm like what okay whatever I'll I'll buy one. So I bought one this week and I tested it, and it it doesn't do a, as good a job as the Ice Tower, but the it's F-L-I-R-C, the Flirk case. It's basically a giant aluminum heatsink case for the Pi. The case oh. actually attaches to the CPU, and it does do a pretty good job cooling it. It keeps it down at like 40 to 45 Celsius, which is still way better than just having an open air or having a little fan blowing on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but having a cluster of these, they'd probably still get super hot. <laughs> so. So having a cluster, you, you got to have some sort of fan blowing the heat out. Otherwise, it's just going to turn into a little oven. Now, in addition to all the hobbies you have, uh, side projects and so on, you are also an author. 
Um, and I would love to hear about your latest book and the book that you've written on Kubernetes. Uh, what are you working on right now? Yeah, so I, I love writing. Um, I don't know how many million words I've written in my life on my blog and on other blogs and things. Um, but um, I, I love writing. And in 2013 or so, I think that was when I started, I, I've always wanted to write a book my whole life. I'm like, I want to write a book sometime. Uh, I think part of that was jealousy because my brother, when he was a kid, wrote a book. And his book, like, you know, The 15 Minutes of Fame, like his book caught mm-hmm. fire and was a local, very popular book. He sold maybe 15,000 copies or something. It was pretty cool being the little brother to the, the brother who wrote that cool book. And, but I was also a little jealous, like, I want to do that too. So, um, but I also just love writing. I've always loved uh, English and literature growing up, and I love reading and I love writing. So um, that, I put that together with the fact that Ansible didn't have a book in 2014. When I, I started with in 2013, but in 2014, I'm like, there's still no book for Ansible, and it's really popular. So I decided to start writing it with a goal that I would write 100 pages and sell 200 copies. And uh, it was funny because I, I, I started writing it on a platform called LeanPub where you can publish it while you're writing it and sell it while you're writing it. And by the time I, I had written about 40 pages, I already had sold 200 copies. Uh, and then, you know, <laughs> fast forward these many years later, it's uh, 2019. So it's been, it's been in, in print for five years now. And I now sell it on Amazon and other places. And it's called Ansible for DevOps. And uh, that book has sold over 22,000 copies, and um, it's now like 480-something pages, including a chapter on Kubernetes and a chapter on Docker and uh, a couple examples that do Drupal, um, one of them inspired by the, the Raspberry Pi Dramble cluster. So that was, that was my first book effort, and it went incredibly well, and I was, I was floored. I, I don't, there's no word to describe, like, when you're like, I want to do this thing my whole life, and this is my goal, and then your goal is, like, surpassed by, like, 50 times over, and you get to That's meet awesome. awesome people because of it, and it's just so many cool things happened because of that book. Um, it also was, helped us, in my family, we, we've wanted to remodel our kitchen, and, uh, after writing the book and, and making some profit off of it, I was able to remodel the kitchen like four years earlier than we thought we might be able to. So, you know, that's a huge change for our life because our old kitchen was kind of hard with three kids and, and the way that we live our life and and stuff at home, especially since I work remote and I'm at home all the time. It was, you know, we had an old cramped little kitchen and we were able to get it better. So that, like the book was just awesome. I don't expect to have the same uh, level of success, but who knows? You never know where it's going to lead. Uh, but I'm I'm working on another book. I actually just finished the first chapter uh, a few nights ago, and I, I have a structure for the rest of it. And I'm working on uh, examples and, and chapters. Uh, the next book is going to be called Ansible for Kubernetes. And uh, you know maybe maybe if Ansible's still around in five years and there's another game changing cloud infrastructure thing, it'll be Ansible Ansible for that, and I'll have a whole series out. But uh, I'm working on that book, and I, I haven't published it yet. I probably will pretty soon. Even though it's not finished, I'll publish uh, in-progress updates on LeanPub. But both of those books, uh, if you go to Ansible for DevOps, all spelled out, or Ansible for Kubernetes.com, those are the book sites. And uh, I've, I, I, love, I love writing them, and, and one of the best things about writing them in progress is for both books, I've had a lot of interaction with the people who read it, and they can help me to... Like if they're interested in something, I can write about that. Or if they are like, 
your example didn't work on my computer. I can improve it before I actually make a published printed version that, version. that people will buy. I very much appreciate knowing about Ansible for Kubernetes. Um, I didn't know that was what you were working on. And I think we actually bought Ansible for DevOps, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, thank you. Um, we have, when Tess first started working for us, we wanted to make a big change to how we were doing things at 10.7 and the custom scripts we had, and we wanted more automation. And um, Tess was very interested in Ansible being the thing, and we had to learn it. So... Um, you've certainly provided a great deal of information and help to 10.7 in that manner as well. So we wish you all the best for your new book, Ansible for Kubernetes, and um, we'll be linking to it from the uh, show notes on the podcast episode as well. That's great. Thank you. You're very welcome. Well, I think that's a wrap. We should uh, say goodbye, and uh, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, and um, I hope to talk to you again soon. And um, I'm going to go to Micro Center right now on a number of different visits because you can't <laughs> buy more than one at a time and buy some more Raspberry Pis so that I have more than you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can, I don't know what I'm going to do with them, though. <laughs> well, you can always get a bunch of Raspberry Pi Zeros and stick them in people's stocking stuffers, that kind of thing. Oh, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. Stocking stuff for $5 Raspberry Pi Zero. Awesome. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today. It's been great. Author and software developer Jeff Gearling was my guest today. And you can find him across the web using the handle at GearlingGuy. You can also find him online at JeffGearling.com. And of course, the Raspberry Pi Dramble is at PyDramble.com. And if you're interested in either of those books, you should go to ansiblefordevops.com or ansibleforkubernetes.com. You've been listening to the 10.7 podcast. Find us online at 10.7.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 10.7.com. Until next time. This is Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening.